Indeed, truly, there is none like the Lord. He is not only the best, he is the only God. <laughs> he is the only one who reigns in heaven above and the one who made the earth and made all of us and therefore is deserving of our worship and praise. And so our hearts overflow with gratitude to him. As we open his word this morning, let's go to him asking for his assistance. Father, we bow before you this morning and we ask that you would please teach us as we come to your word this morning. Give us open minds and humble hearts. Give us humility that we might learn what it is that our Savior has for us today. Oh, Father, there are many things that keep us from your word and from obeying it, but we want to see you in your word. And so we ask that you would please remove the obstacles and help us to delight in what we see in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, already here in 2023, we have been blessed in our corporate gatherings here together. On New Year's Day, we heard from Pastor Taylor as he preached from Psalm chapter 1. And last week was a sweet time as a body as we were able to hear of the testimony of God's grace in several of us in the congregation. And so today we get to return to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke, our regular exposition, consecutive exposition that we have been doing through this book now for a couple years. And I'm taking the first few passages that we'll be studying in Luke chapter 17 as an opportunity for a little mini-series that I'm calling Old Lessons for a New Year. Here in these beginning verses of Luke 17, Jesus teaches on several different topics and Luke has arranged them here for us that aren't in one sense dramatically brand new or groundbreaking things that maybe he hasn't even mentioned before, but they are good reminders for us to hear again. And so it's good for us as we begin a new year, 2023, to remi be reminded of these old lessons. And the first lesson that we'll consider in Luke 17 is dealing rightly with sin. Dealing rightly with sin. Again, this is a topic that is truly perennial. It's one that we can come to time and again and it is important for us to do so. We need constant reminders of the importance of dealing with not only our own sin, but how do we deal with sin in the community? How do we deal with sin in the church, in the lives of one another? Because sin marks us all. We all bear the marks of the presence of sin in our own lives. Of course, as believers in Christ, we look forward to the day when sin will be no more. When Jesus will return and he will vanquish evil once and for all and sin will be a thing of the past. We don't want to deal with sin any longer. We don't want to be sinned against anymore. We don't want to deal with the brokenness of this world and the suffering that results. And yet we live each day in this broken and fallen world, do we not? We are waiting for that final day. And yet we bear the marks of sin even now. Each of our own stories have those marks. 
Maybe it's the marks of someone who has sinned against you and you've suffered at their hands and their words. We've experienced broken relationships in which we have seen those that we were once close to drift away. Of course, we've all been defeated by certain sins again and again, sins that we thought we could, we could conquer and have victory over, and yet we find ourselves returning to them in frustration. And then we've experienced just the pain and the suffering that comes from a world that's under the curse of sin with pain and suffering. Whatever it is in your life, we all bear these marks. And so as a church, we have a choice to make. How are we going to deal with the sin that we have in our lives and the lives of one another? Will we deal with sin in our lives and with those in others or will we make excuses? Will we turn a blind eye or will we indulge our sin? Our passage this morning forces us to ask whether we will deal with sin rightly as Jesus instructs. And so I invite you to turn with me if you're not already there to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. This chapter brings us to the latter part of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. This is the last six months of his life as he journeys to Jerusalem where he will then uh, be nailed upon a cross. And as he gets closer to that fate, he continues to teach the disciples and to prepare them for his absence. And yet he knows that his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees, are nearby, they're listening, that there are many disciples who have attached themselves to Jesus and are traveling along this road with him, but they haven't yet made up their mind about Jesus. They're still considering whether they will truly follow him. And so Jesus teaches his disciples, as verse 1 says, but there is an understanding that there's a wider audience around as well. And so follow along as I read. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. Verses 1 through 6. Follow along as I read. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Well, here in these first six verses of Luke 17, I believe that this passage confronts us with three heart attitudes that we must possess if we're going to deal with sin rightly as Christ's disciples. If we're going to follow his instructions, we need to make sure these attitudes, these things are a part of who we are. And so the first attitude that we're faced with in verses one uh, and touching to verse three is sobriety sobriety. We need to be sober about how we deal with sin. We must take sin seriously. And in particular, Jesus focuses here first on taking seriously causing other people to sin. There's other places 
we could go in the Bible about looking at our own sin and how our sin is a front to God, the holiness of God. That's not what this passage is specifically dealing with. This passage is looking at causing other people to sin. And the first bit that he highlights, Jesus says in the first part of verse 1, is sobriety over the presence of temptation. Sobriety over the presence of temptation. Look at his opening statement. He says to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Temptations to sin are sure to come. This is a declaration that you can expect these temptations. The sentence in the Greek is actually composed of double negatives. If it were translated literally, it would read, like this, it is impossible that temptations to sin not come. It's impossible that they not come, which is another way of saying they are sure to come. And because it's not proper English for us to speak with double negatives, the translators put it in a positive declaration. Now the phrase temptations to sin, if you have the English Standard Version as I do, you'll notice the footnote, uh, the translation footnote that tells you that it's uh, the word stumbling blocks. And it translates the word scandal on from which we get the English word scandal. The word can refer to a trap or a snare or it can refer to a stumbling block that's there in the road. And so if you were to think of a path, this word can either refer to a pit that has been dug and covered over so that you don't see it so that people will fall into it. It's a trap. Or it's like a log that's laid across or a major stone that's there as a stumbling block, a stumbling stone for people to trip and to fall. Either way, it's to cause a detrimental consequence to the people. And so the ESV translates it, temptations to sin, understanding that snare and that uh, stumbling block reality. Other translations like the New King James and the Christian Standard Bible translate it, offenses. The New American Standard and others translates it stumbling blocks, but they're all trying to get the same thing. There are spiritual hindrances that are out there and that disciples of Christ can expect to be there. In fact, it's impossible that they not come. They're there to lead believers astray, to get them off track. And so Jesus' first statement here says that these will come. It's inevitable that they will be here while we are living in this broken world. Until he comes, stumbling blocks will be a part of our existence. And church, this should sober us. This world is not our home. We are pilgrims that are just passing through. We are looking to that heavenly city, our final destination, our final home. And until we get there, there are temptations and stumbling blocks that are deliberately laid in our path in order to trip us up and to stumble us. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know of the multitude of ways that are there that the author John Bunyan tried to illustrate that are there to try to get the believer to take a detour, to take a sidetrack, to trip them up. But we must be sobered and recognize that these are there. Too many Christians live their lives willingly without caution about the temptations that are there. They don't have regard to the possibility that all these things that they enjoy in this life, there may be lurking temptations and stumbling blocks for their own souls. 
They seem to fly into all that the world has to offer, all the great things that are there that, yes, in many ways we can enjoy if we give thanks unto God for them, but we must be on the lookout. We must go with caution, recognizing that there are temptations and stumbling blocks. And so I just ask you, believer, do you realize that all the places that you frequent, both in the physical world and the online world, that there are temptations and stumbling blocks that abound? Are you interacting in those spheres, recognizing that reality? Are you taking to heart Jesus' words here that it's inevitable, that it's, a, it's, it's impossible they not arise in your life? Whether you're turning on the TV, flipping open your phone, or participating in something with friends, these temptations abound. Now, each of us are not susceptible to the same temptations. One thing might lure you in that doesn't lure me in, and, and yet we need to know what are the things that seek to draw us in, and we need to be on the lookout for them. We need to know the pitfalls and the rocks that are in our path because we've tripped over them before. We need to be alert that we are not falling prey to temptations that lead us to sin. But more than sobriety over the presence of temptations, Jesus then turns and emphasizes sobriety over the pathway of temptations, namely through whom the temptations come. So verse 1, he says, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. He pronounces a woe. A woe is a prophetic way to pronounce judgment. And so he says that there's judgment on those through whom these temptations or stumbling blocks come. And to illustrate the seriousness, he goes on in verse 2 with a comparison. Look at it with me. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone was a large rock that... Roll, was rolled around on top of another stone in order to crush grain or to, or to uh, press olives to bring out olive oil. And this could either be pushed with a, a large stick by a man or a donkey could push it around in a circle in order to run it around on the mill. These were large stones. These were stones that probably are not even able to be moved by one man. And yet Jesus takes this illustration of this large, heavy stone. Very graphically, he says it would be better for the perpetrator of these stumbling blocks, it would be better for them if they had this millstone tied to their neck and they were cast into the bottom of the sea. The little ones here, it'd be better if they do this than that they, he says at the end of verse 2, that they should he should cause one of these little ones to sin. These little ones. Is he talking about children? Well, no, I think he's referring to all believers. The cross reference here to Mark chapter 9, verse 42, records the same words of Jesus, but he adds, he says, these little ones who believe in me. Therefore, I think identifying these as believers in Christ. He is calling his disciples, his people, those who follow him, who are in his flock, these little ones, emphasizing his care for them, emphasizing that he treats them as a father does his children. We are all children of faith, right? We are all sheep in his flock. We are all weak and needing of protection. And Jesus here is showing that protection. Now, I don't think that Jesus is just speaking in, it is an illustration, it is a metaphor, but 
he's not just speaking in hyperbole. He's, he's actually saying that a horrific death by execution, as it were, is better than to go about the action that he's talking about. Causing a believer to stumble. And we have to ask, well, if that's better, then what's worse? What is it that it would be saving them from to have this millstone hung around their neck? And I think the only thing we can conclude is that what's worse is the, the fires of judgment in hell. In other words, it's better to go through this gruesome punishment and you be saved from the fires of hell than you, go, than you cause a believer to stumble and you face that punishment. Now many interpret these verses of Jesus' warning that any who contribute to a believer sinning, uh, causing a Christian to sin, that uh, this verse applies. That even if we as a believer cause another believer to sin, that this is true, that it'd be better for our millstone to be hung around our neck than for us to cause another believer to sin. But it forced me to ask the question, does Jesus mean that it would be better for one of his children, a believer, to have a millstone tied around their neck, even if they happen to cause another believer to sin? See, I believe that what Jesus is talking about here is not just these little temptations and, and causing people to sin. I think he's talking on a bigger scale here. And the, and the people that he's giving this woe to and the people he's giving the warning to are, are those who are seeking deliberately to trip up disciples of Christ, both spiritually and physically. Those who seek to attack Christians. Jesus is speaking of those who seek to cause Christians to stumble and fall away from the faith. These are men and women of the world who are Satan's servants, and they are the ones who will experience a worse judgment than execution by drowning. They are the ones who Jesus pronounces a woe over. You see, the majority of the references to stumbling blocks in the New Testament that are here in, in this translation, translated temptations to sin, refer to unbelief, refer to ultimate rejection of the truth, not just to, if we might call them, minor sins. In other words, the stumbling blocks and the causing a believer to sin that Jesus is talking about is a complete rejection rejection of faith, a complete destruction of faith, of falling away, not simply a minor slip up, not simply a sin along our path. And so who is, who is Jesus pronouncing this woe to? Who is he pronouncing this warning to? Well, I think most immediately it's to the scribes and Pharisees. Who are the ones seeking to to lure away the disciples of Christ and cause them to reject Jesus, the only Messiah, it was the scribes and Pharisees. It was their false doctrine that was making their converts twice the sons of hell as they were. It was they were the ones who were slamming the kingdom in people's faces. We could extrapolate this to the rest of the New Testament where there's the warnings against false teachers. Those who crept into the church teaching false doctrine and sought to lead away believers. And there's warnings all throughout the New to say, look out, these men are there, they're creeping into your places. Paul warned the, the Ephesian elders, they will be wolves that arise within you. These are the ones who are seeking to derail and sideline and cause believers to fall away. And they, it is worse for them than if a millstone were hung around their neck. 
We could take this out to the, the centuries of church history, the persecutors of the church. And I think even today, the wicked tempters and marketers and seductresses who seek to lure young and old into vile practices and behaviors, those who seek through the enticements and allurements of this world, seeking to get those who claim the name of Jesus to participate in wickedness. These are the ones Jesus pronounces a woe over. Friends, Jesus I believe is saying that he will punish and judge all those people for their wickedness in placing stumbling blocks before his children. And friends, does this not give us great comfort to know that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is willing to stand with his people? That even when we are facing stumbling blocks, even when we are, people are deliberately putting things before us to trip us up, that our Savior sees and our Savior will ultimately balance the scales in the end. He will won't provide the ultimate judgment to those who seek to do us in because Jesus is the good shepherd and the Lord of the church. He cares for his family. He will punish all those who seek to stumble us. He will stand by our side and he will ultimately defend us. And yet with that said, even though I believe he's speaking to those who would do believers ultimate ill, I think there is an application for us to see that if Jesus cares this much and pronounce this kind of woe on those who would, who would sideline believers in this sort of way, we can extrapolate back and realize that even for us to be the cause of temptation, to, to, for us to be the reason that another believer might step into sin is a, is a grave sin for ourselves. Unpardonable? No. All our sins are covered by the blood of Christ. But we should take seriously how we influence other believers. Unfortunately, we have been at times pathways through which temptations have come into the lives of other Christians and this should sober us. Pastor Philip Reichen gave a list of the ways that we as believers can sometimes inadvertently even cause other believers to sin. I thought it was a good representative list, not exhaustive, but it begins to get our minds going in terms of what are some ways that we might be causing others to sin? What we do, we do it anytime our actions or attitudes set a bad spiritual example. We do something that's wrong and we set a bad example, we can be tempting others to follow in that same footsteps. We do it when our complaining spirit causes other people to be discontent. We begin to complain about our circumstances and they begin to complain about theirs. We can cause others to stumble when we uh, speak evil words that unfairly influence someone else's opinion. Maybe it's about something going on in the world about someone else in the church. We can tempt others by carrying on an argument to the point where we provoke an angry response. We wanna be right and so we press and we press and we press until they respond in anger. We can do it by inciting someone to commit sexual sin or to join us for some juicy bit of gossip. We can even do it by boasting about our accomplishments or our acquisitions in such a way that causes the other person to become envious or discontent or even boastful in their own way. And these, again, are just examples. There are many ways in which our own sins, we can be the pathway through which temptations come to other believers. And parents, let me just say a special word to you. Because of our heavy influence, God designed large influence upon our children, we also can be the pathway to 
temptations to our own children. Our stringent rules, our unbearable standards, our harsh responses can provoke our children to sin. Conversely, our hypocrisy, our fleshly living, our ungodly habits can be a stumbling block to our children's faith too. As they say, more is caught than taught. They watch how we live and they begin to implement how we live and we end up setting them on a path that is not walking in faith but maybe a path of indulging the flesh. Now, in all these cases, each person is responsible for how they live. We are not to blame for someone else's sin but we need to keep a careful eye on ourselves. As Jesus says in the beginning of verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. We need to watch ourselves that we're not a cause for sin to somebody else. We don't want to cause anyone else to stumble because it's a sober reality. Well, there's a second, the first hard attitude for us to have is sobriety. The second quality I believe this passage exhorts us to is to cultivate grace. Cultivate grace. Jesus does this in verse, by turning to verse 3, he he pivots from talking about temptations and stumbling blocks that threaten the church from without to now talking about sin that arises from within the church. Now, while the church is the redeemed community, we are all saved by the blood of Christ and we live differently, Lord willing, now than we did before. That's what conversion's all about. We did a 180. We, did, we, we, we repented. We were following our own, the course of this world, our own flesh, and now we've turned to Jesus and we follow him as Lord and we seek to implement his character into our lives as we obey his word. And so that should change how we live and interact with one another. But sin still remains in us. And we have a great propensity to harm and to hurt each other through our words and our actions. And so Jesus is providing here a way for us as the church to be able to deal with sin within our own midst. How do we deal with sin that arises in our relationships? The primary call is to act with love and grace towards each other. Love and grace towards each other. Even though those words are not found here, I believe they, perform, they, they provide the background of this text. In particular, Jesus is going to address that we need grace enough to confront and grace enough to forgive. Now let's look first at grace to confront in verses, uh, verse 3. Jesus says, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now in the New Testament, brother simply refers to followers of Christ. So this is, could be translated even brothers or sisters. It's gender specific it refers to those who are I would say within the church and so if your brother or sister sins rebuke him Jesus is not assuming that a believer will sin but he's saying if it does happen this is what you do we are to rebuke him or her now to rebuke someone means to simply confront them in their sin let me talk to you I've seen the sin in your life this arose in this circumstance, we need to confront them. But this word to rebuke, get this, refers more to the action than it does to the tone. I think we hear the word rebuke and we instantly think of a furrowed brow and we think of a loud tone and we think we got to rebuke them. But this word refers more to the action than the tone. Jesus is not giving warrant to angry tirades. He is not saying it's okay to berate or to belittle. 
all in the name of rebuking sin. In fact, I believe he wants us to approach the sinning brother or sister with grace and love. Why do we confront? Why would we bother ourselves with even talking to someone about their sin? It's because we love them. It's because we all share a concern that we live lives according to God's word. We want to live lives worthy of the gospel. And so we are all in this, this great work of trying to help one another live according to his word. Author Paul David Tripp says, sanctification is a community project. We're all working together to see that we're all sanctified into the image of Christ. And so we've got to go about this kind of work. We each, get this, need the grace of confrontation. We each need the grace of confrontation. Why? Because we all have blind spots. We have blind spots. We don't always see all the things in our lives. We're plowing along with our life and think everything's great, thinking that we're in the right and the good. But there's people around us that are saying, whoa, time out. Do you see what's going on in your life? Do you see what your actions are doing? Do you see the harm that you're causing? We need the grace of confrontation. Because, I mean, friends, ask your own heart. You don't want to be continuing on dishonoring Christ and harming others unknowingly, do we? We want someone to tell us that we might stop, that we might reorient, change our ways. And so we need loving confrontation. And so this means that you, believer, have a duty to confront those in your life who are found in sin. But in our individualistic society, we don't like to meddle in people's business. We're just going to let people ride and kind of turn away and go, oh my, whoo. We, we log it away, but we don't say anything. Unfortunately, the church can be the same way. We, of course, see people sin. We feel it. We see it. We smell it. And yet, we too often just put a smile on our face and say, how you doing? Good. Good to see you. And we move on. Instead of confronting that person, we can, unfortunately, the temptation is to talk to others about it. We gossip. Sometimes it's in the form of spiritual garb, such as a prayer request. Oh, please pray for my wife. She blinky, blinky, blink. Please pray for my children. She, they didn't. But gossip, friends, destroys relationships. Proverbs says it separates close friends. It will rip apart a family, a community, any sort of relationship gossip destroys. And yet the goal here is not destruction of relationships, but building up of relationships. The goal is restoration. The goal is healing. The goal is holiness. This is made clear in Paul's words in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where he writes this. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I think Paul actually has Jesus' words in Luke 17 in the back of his mind. Because you'll notice that keep watching yourself is repeated here, as well as the idea of rebuking and, and seeking to restore. But notice how it sets here. Number one, it's brothers or brothers and sisters. Hey, family of, of Christ, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Notice that language of caught. By placing the sin of our fellow believer in the language of being caught, doesn't that give us greater sympathy for them? 
to recognize that even though they might be deliberately doing it, there's a sense in which they are caught fast in the cords of sin. And we can have compassion and sympathy on them that we want to see them freed. Again, it's not to lessen their responsibility or their culpability, but recognizing that it can have a, a strangling grasp upon our brother or sister. And then he says, you who are spiritual. This is not a specific class of Christian. This is not just the elders of the church. You who are spiritual, hint, hint, are those who have the spirit. And who has the spirit? But every Christian. Therefore, he's saying, all of you who walk in the spirit, who he just finished talking about in Galatians chapter five, if you walk by the spirit, then you need to restore others who are caught in sin. Every Christian walking in the power of the Spirit should seek to restore our brother and sister who's caught in sin. And what is the Spirit by which we go about doing this? Is this with harshness? Is this with, with, with seeking to whack them over with a two-by-four across the head? No, it's a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Not harshness. And likewise, we are to keep watch on ourselves lest too, we too be tempted. What temptations could come? Could it be the temptation they've fallen into? Well, maybe, but it's probably the temptation to be angry, the temptation to be apathetic, the temptation to, to not love, but to love ourselves more than them, the temptation to pride, to think that we're better than them, that how dare you actually step into that? I would never do that. There's lots of temptations for us as we go about the seeking to address someone else's sin. And so why Jesus and Paul both said, Pay attention to yourselves when you go about this work. When you go about the work of confronting, you need to be, keep an eye on yourself. And yet, isn't it true that when somebody sins against us, what fills our vision and fills our hearts? It is the sin of that other person. How dare they? That consumes us. And yet Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. But if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, with all this rebuking language and confrontation, someone might raise their hand and say, hey, but doesn't the Bible say we're supposed to overlook offenses? And I'd say, yes, it does. In fact, 1 Peter 4, verse 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Not all offenses need to be confronted. We are not to suddenly be the the re rebuking force that is to go around and seeking to find all the little sins that people do and play spiritual whack-a-mole. And we just bump, 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 bump and confront all over the place because Jesus said to rebuke, so I'm rebuking. But friends, in the normal course of cr the Christian life and the church life, we should cover with love far more than we rebuke. Love covers a multitude of sins. We should practice this forgiveness and love of our heart that recognizes they may not have meant that. They were trying to do this even though that hurt me. They, that might have been an insensitive comment, but I can overlook that with love. Friends, we need to practice this muscle of overlooking with love as much as we need to practice the muscle of rebuking in love. But even though we should, in the vast majority of times, as I said, overlook with love, there are some times we can't overlook it. We can't avoid it. And to give us some helpful wisdom on knowing when do we confront and when do we not, I want to share with you some helpful guidelines from Pastor John MacArthur that he gives in his book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. He gives four guidelines to help us to think through when should we confront. The first guideline he gives is, if you observe a serious offense that is a sin against someone other than you, confront the offender. So you are in small group and 
you hear a comment made about somebody or something is, is made that seems insensitive and the night goes on and nothing is done, but it weighs upon you because you recognize the offense. Maybe you read the face of the person that, that hurt or maybe you know them personally. You know how that landed on the other person. Then you can take up their cause and out of love seek to confront that person who made that comment or who sinned in that way. We take up the cause of our brothers and sisters and seek to confront them in their sin. The second guideline he gives is when ignoring an offense might hurt the offender, confrontation is required. As I said, we need the grace of confrontation. There are things in our lives that we cannot allow. We don't want to continue on in our hearts and lives. We don't want our actions to continue this way. We don't want to continue sounding that way. We don't want to continue to, to be that kind of person to others in the church. And so there's a way in which we need help. And so if, if that person needs, has a major character flaw and, and, and that flaw is causing destruction and causing hurt to those around them, we need to help that person by confronting them lovingly, pulling them aside and helping them to see what they probably don't see. Thirdly, MacArthur says, when a sin is scandalous or otherwise potentially damaging to the body of Christ, confrontation is essential. Now again, this is going to cross with some of the other guidelines we already saw. If it's scandalous, it's probably damaging to the person who's, who's doing it. But the reality is, is that if this is something that is, is a blatant uh, disregard of Christ, that, is, that is, uh, is putting Christ's name, throwing Christ's name under the bus, we have got to speak up and say something. Maybe you work with a fellow believer. Maybe you see something posted online that you know is in a public way and you know that this is, is not giving Christ a good name, then you are duty-bound to say something to that brother for the cause of Christ and for the cause of that brother or sister. And fourth and finally, he says, anytime an offense results in a broken relationship, formal forgiveness is an essential step toward reconciliation. <clears throat> so anytime an offense breaks a relationship, there's anger that's happened, there's offense that's been made, and now there's coolness in the relationship. You don't want to talk to one another. Our relationship's been broken. There needs to be a confrontation that happens. There needs to be addressing that in order for reconciliation to happen. You can't go on and just say, oh, we're going to be like ships in the night and just walk in different sides of the foyer and sit on different sides of the worship center. We've got to deal with it, and these are the times that we know that we need to deal with sin. And so Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Simple words, but they require both courage and compassion. Courage, friends, because we have got to step into some hard situations and have hard conversations. We cannot be put off by the awkwardness, the hardness of it. And compassion, because it helps us to step in rightly. And so I ask you, when fellow saints sin against you, do you move towards them with grace to confront them? Do you pursue them in a spirit of gentleness? Or do you avoid conflict? Or do you run into conflict? We all have propensities, but we need to balance them with what the scriptures say. We need to be a community that obeys Jesus' instruction here and graciously rebukes one another when we see each other in sin. But not only should there be grace to confront, but there must be grace to forgive. And he's goes on in verses 3 and 4. After he says to rebuke, he says, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
Now, if our brother responds humbly after our confrontation and he repents of their sin, we are obligated to forgive him. It's that simple. We say, brother, you hurt me in this way. He says, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. Will you forgive me for those words that I said? We are obligated by Christ, duty-bound, to say, yes, I forgive you. It is disobedience, get this, it is disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ to withhold forgiveness. Our forgiveness must be granted immediately. But not only are we to forgive immediately, but Jesus goes further and says, we are to forgive repeatedly. Verse uh, verse 4 makes that clear that even if our, our brother asks us for forgiveness seven times in a day, we are to repeat our forgiveness. Now, I know what you're thinking. If if it's like even the fourth time, I'm going to begin to go, are you really repentant? Are you really sorry over what you've done? But notice Jesus doesn't give us any steps to qualify the genuineness of the repentance. He says, if our brother or sister comes to us and says, I repent, we are to offer forgiveness. We aren't to launch into a tirade about how irresponsible he or she has been. We are simply called to forgive. In Scripture, seven is a number of perfection. And so I don't believe that seven is actually a limit. We know in other places, Jesus says we're to forgive 70 times seven. The point is that we are to be open-hearted in our forgiveness, ready to forgive no matter how many times this person sins against us. Isn't this otherworldly? Isn't this great against our natural inclinations? But why can we, the church, be so open with forgiveness? Why does Jesus release us to be this free and doling out forgiveness? Well, friends, it's because of the gospel. It's because we recognize all that we have been forgiven ourselves. We are those who have been forgiven much, and we know it. We've come to Christ with our sins forgiven. We have an eternal debt that we could not pay. And so therefore, this puny debt that the person racks up against us, even if it's seven times in a day, we can forgive over and over again because we have the infinite forgiven us. Forgiveness, friends, is central to the gospel. This is part of the message that we take to the world is that through Christ, there's forgiveness through sins, of sins. And when you realize that you've been forgiven in Christ, it enables you to forgive even the greatest offenses done to you, which is why Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our forgiveness should be accompanied with tenderheartedness, not reluctant forgiveness. But we need to ask ourselves, why do we withhold our forgiveness? Why are we so tempted to not forgive and to cross our arms and to make that person linger a little bit longer before we give our forgiveness? Well, we often don't want the person to get off that easy, right? They sin against us and then they ask for forgiveness and we're like, wait a minute, you got to sit in this a little bit longer. Or many times, friends, we withhold our forgiveness because we want them to feel the pain that we're feeling. Isn't that true? We've been hurt. And how dare I just forgive them and they get off. They've got to feel what I feel. And so we can think that if we forgive, then we're downplaying the seriousness of the sin. They were just writing it off. Oh, it's not a big deal. Or we think that if we forgive, then we're going to absolve the offender and that they're not going to get any consequences. And so we think part of their consequences is to feel my wrath and my coldness. And so I'm going to hold on to this longer. But friends, forgiveness, true biblical forgiveness does not downplay sin. 
It does not mean that justice can no longer be sought or that consequences can no longer be implemented. Forgiveness means we acknowledge that we are not the one to punish the offender. Withholding forgiveness, while a natural response, is never a godly response and is never to be used to punish the wrongdoer. And so how do we go about this kind of forgiveness? How do we forgive as the Bible calls us to forgive? Author Stanley Gale in his book, Finding Forgiveness, gives two steps in biblical forgiveness that I think are helpful for us. And so the first way that we forgive, how do we go about forgiving as the Bible calls us to? First, it means that we remove the offense. If someone comes to us and asks us to forgive, what do we do? We first have to remove the offense. That means that we no longer hold the offense against that person. In the heat of the moment, that person is associated with that offense. We cannot look at that person without thinking of what they did to us. It fills our vision, it dominates our interactions, that person is, is, is forever connected with this and it's distracting and it, and, it, and it dominates the relation. Nothing can go forward because that fills our vision in a minor, less serious way. It's like if you're at a nice restaurant with your spouse and you're trying to have a conversation with them and they either have a big piece of food on the side of their face or a, a large green in their teeth and uh, you're trying to take them seriously, but you can't because there is just something that is distracting your attention. In a much more serious way, when someone sins against us, it so distracts us and fills our vision, we can't go forward with that person. We have to say something in order to interact freely again. And so this is what forgiveness does. It gets things out of the way. It's choosing in our own minds and hearts to disassociate sin from that person. We put it to where we can't see it anymore. We don't want this thing to distract the relationship. So this thing that they did, I will forgive you and I'm going to move it out of the way. I'm going to move it out of the way. And this is exactly what God does with us, friends. Isaiah 38 verse 17 says that God casts our sins behind his back. Now, does God have a physical back? No. But he moves it out of the way to where it's no longer between us and him. Micah 7 says he casts it into the depths of the sea. We need to follow the Lord's lead as we seek to disassociate this sin from this person. A different way of saying it is that in forgiveness, you choose to pay the debt that they've racked up against you. You see, when someone sins against you, they're in debt to you. And the natural human response is to hold that over their head and make them pay. However, in Christ, we must release our brother of that debt. The gospel reminds us that we have been forgiven eternal, an eternal debt. Therefore, how dare we turn around and fail to offer that same grace to one of our own brothers or sisters? Again, we're not to determine the genuineness before we offer that forgiveness. We're simply to forgive. Now, some would say, well, this passage says that a person must verbalize their repentance before offering forgiveness. So I can stand back and I don't have to give forgiveness until they come to me and say, I repent. And it's true that this passage does say that they come to you seven times and say, I repent. And in those cases, we are to forgive. But I believe that there's other passages of scripture that speak to the fact that even if they aren't coming to you, that we are simply to forgive them in our hearts. You can think of Jesus upon the cross who says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, who was being stoned to death, asked that God would forgive them, those who were stoning him. And most notably, Mark 11, verse 25. 
Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He says, if you're standing by yourself, you need to forgive if there's something there. So we need to remove that sin from that person and disassociate it from them. But the second is we need to remember the sin no more. The second action of forgiveness is to remember the sin no more. Now this does not mean that we suddenly forget sin, that we just flip a switch and bink, I can't even remember that it ever happened, like we got a, a memory wipe or something. That's not possible. But what can we do? We can choose to not recall it. Recall is an action that we choose to do, that we can fight against. And so in forgiveness, we make a promise. We make a commitment that we are not going to bring up the offense in a vengeful way. Isn't it all too common, though, to bring up past offenses as ammunition? In the heat of an argument, we want the other person to feel the pain that they've caused us, and so we pull out our list. And yet Christ commands us to grant forgiveness and to relinquish the opportunity to bring up those offenses again. When we say, yes, I forgive you, we are shredding the list to say, I will never bring this out in ammunition against you again. Friends, again, isn't this what God does with us? How many times have we sinned against him? And how many times does he forgive us? Isaiah 43, verse 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Therefore, for us to imitate God in this, we must commit to not bring up the offense. Now, how, who do we not bring up the offense against? There's three, there's three groups of people. We promise to not bring up the offense, number one, to the offender, to the person that we forgave. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The second person we promise to not bring it up to is others. We've already talked about gossip. Gossip destroys. And we cannot seek to bring up this sin against others in a derogatory sort of way. And thirdly, we promise in forgiveness to not bring it up with ourselves. To any of you that have had a major rash or had a, a run-in with poison oak, and you know the, the strong itching feeling that is there that is incessant and is constantly clawing at you, but you know that if you itch it, you're only going to make it worse. In the same way, bitterness and the remembering of past wrongs is like an itch that screams at us, and it wants to be remembered. It wants to be stoked. And so we in our flesh can want to scratch and itch it and go, yeah, that's what they did to me. But friends, in forgiveness, we're promising to put that away, to commit it to the Lord, and to promise to not bring it up. And the longer that we stop itching, the easier it gets. The temptation goes away. Now let me just say a caveat here. Because we can say to remember the sins no more, and we can, you can go, wait a minute, but some people have done some really awful things over a number of years. Are you saying that if we've forgiven them, we can't ever like speak to them about those things? And let me make a distinction here. What I'm saying is that in forgiveness, we never bring out a list of historical wrongs for the purpose of harm, to do them harm, to attack. But there is a place 
in bringing out such a list in order to help that person, in order to help that person. For example, you can forgive your teenager many times for breaking the rules that you've set up and you recognize the, the danger that it's coming to them because of the way they're disregarding your standards and you forgive them each and every time. You're not holding bitterness against them, but you need to address something with them because if they continue on this path, it is not good for them. And so there are times when trends in someone's behavior necessitate that we talk with them about how they've committed the same sin over and over again. We go to Jesus' earlier command to rebuke them in their sin. Again, the purpose is not to harm them, to not make them feel pain, not to win an argument, but it's to help them identify a blind spot in their character. And so friends, I ask you, are you gracious in the forgiveness that God has called you to give? I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what offenses you might be battling with. Maybe there's nothing in your life and, and nothing at the moment. Praise God. How do you interact? How do you deal with those who sin against you? Are you quick to forgive? Are you loving to confront? We as the church must seek to have grace, recognizing that we are all forgiven in Christ and that we all want to help one another to walk according to Jesus. And when we see this high standard, friends, we recognize that we can't do this in our own, on our own. This is, this is otherworldly. This is spiritual. We are of the flesh naturally, and this is not natural to us. And so this is why I believe the apostles say what they say next. And so we'll just quickly close out this last third and final heart attitude, and that is faith. We looked at sobriety, grace, and now thirdly, faith in verses five and six. After hearing what Jesus says about forgiveness, the apostles say, increase our faith. They say, Lord, I can't do this. We need great faith in order to be able to handle this. And so they pray to Jesus, recognizing that Jesus can answer that for them, and they ask that he would increase their faith. Jesus replies by saying, if you had the faith like the grain of, of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, friends, Jesus is not actually asking his disciples to go out and be trying to move trees into the sea. His point is that not that they, we need more faith, but that the faith that we have, however small it might be, needs to be genuine and resting upon the only one that can do anything, and that is Jesus Christ. Our faith needs to be in God Almighty. He is the one through whom all things are possible. How are we going to forgive like this? How are we going to rebuke with love and grace? How are we going to keep from being temptations to others? It's all going to be through the power of God, friends. And so we must rest and trust in him alone. In order to deal rightly with our sin, in our lives or in fellow believers' lives, we need to trust in Christ to make it happen. It's all going to be through him. And so we must trust and believe in him. And amazing things will happen. Communities will be healed. Relationships will be healed. People will be forgiven. Wrongs suffered will be able to be let go. And relationships restored in amazing ways that gives testimony to the power of Christ in us. That is what we want to see is that Christ's name is magnified in our relationships. And so let's pray that in our church and through our relationships that God enables us to deal with sin rightly according to his word and that his grace is put on display in our lives and in our relationships. Amen? Let's bow together in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for the power of your word, for the 
practical instructions that it gives us. And yet, Lord, we confess that the standard it gives us is so high. It's asking us to do hard things. And so, Father, we cry out to you, asking that you would please give the grace that is needed to walk according to your word. I pray that we as Foothill Bible Church would not seek to handle our relationships in our own flesh, both in our homes and in the church, that we would not rely on our natural inclinations, what we most feel like doing, but Father, we would follow your word because we love you and we want to obey you. Father, may your grace shine in our hearts. May we get a renewed sense of all that you have forgiven us and all that you have done to rescue us from our sin, that we would seek to extend that grace to others. Oh God, we trust you and we ask that you do this in our midst for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, friends, may you go forth this week resting in the forgiveness of Christ. You're dismissed.